WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. At this point, we're over 100 episodes, but if some of you remember, on our very first episode, we spoke about the Zika virus and how mosquitoes were the vectors for that disease. Today, we're discussing with Avery Tilly about his research on how mosquitoes transmit diseases to deer. Hi, Avery. Thanks for joining us today. May you please introduce yourself and your research for us? Hello, everyone. My name is Avery Tilly, and I am a junior at Michigan State University in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. And my research is on white-tailed deer, specifically how they interact with mosquitoes around the context of West Nile virus. Nice to meet you, Avery. Coming from South Florida, I'm pretty familiar with all of these mosquito-borne diseases. But for our audience, could you describe a little bit about what West Nile virus is? Sure. So West Nile virus is a somewhat complicated disease. So it is transmitted by mosquitoes. So that means that mosquitoes are carrying it from host to host or from animals and people that can be hosts. But there's actually different types of hosts. So uh, white-tailed deer and humans, including most other mammals, are what we call dead-end hosts. Or basically, once we contract West Nile virus from a mosquito, we're not able to pass it along to other people or other animals. Versus birds, which are what we call an amplifying or transmitting host for West Nile virus. So birds can pass on West Nile virus to other birds and to other mosquitoes, that, which then can go and pass it on to more birds and more mammals, and the cycle just keeps continuing like that. It's quite surprising to me that the deer and humans are dead end hosts, but birds are not. Do you have any idea why that is? To be honest, I don't know a lot about the virology or the study of West Nile virus. It's a pretty complex pathogen, but I do know that it, it comes down to the way that it interacts with the blood and some other kind of components. Mammals are just a little bit different taxonomically or kind of on the tree of life than birds. And so for those reasons, mammals don't make great uh, reproductive centers for the virus, right? So that's what makes an amplifying host an amplifying host is that the West Nile virus gets in there and just makes a bunch more copies of itself uh, and then is easily spread to other hosts. But for us, like I said, we can get sick from West Nile virus, but it struggles to really pass on out of people because we're just not quite as a good factory, so to speak, for just ramping up production of making that West Nile virus. That's a really good point. West Nile virus is a really complex pathogen, but it's really great that your laboratory was able to exploit this factor that allows you to track the West Nile virus. When it comes to the white-tailed deer itself, though, why do you focus on white-tailed deer versus any other kinds of mammals that exist within the region, such as wolves or even moose? The pinnacle of this whole research project is that we selected white-tailed deer. And I'll give you kind of the sly answer first, and that is we already were getting our hands on white-tailed deer. So we had equipment and people and teams in place to go out and trap white-tailed deer. And we do that in various ways and put a radio collar on them. So that's just a GPS monitoring unit. So we're able to see where the deer are. And all that was being done for a completely different study. But while we had hands on those deer, we were taking their blood. And specifically, when we draw blood, we spin down that whole blood for blood serum, and we can use that to check for West Nile virus antibody titers. And so antibodies and titers are all these buzzwords floating around now, especially because of COVID, but I'll give you guys a quick fill-in. But basically, they're what your body makes if it's ever been infected with a virus. So same as humans, 
white-tailed deer will make antibodies to West Nile if they've ever been infected with West Nile virus. So that's one of the reasons that we opted to do white-tailed deer. And the other one is just purely for investigation. So no one has really looked at white-tailed deer specifically for West Nile virus. And the big reason is because it's not believed to be a very big cause of mortality for white-tailed deer. So it's, it's not a big problem for them from like a conservation or animal health component. Very, very few people have investigated it, and we wanted to look at it from more a kind of holistic perspective or using the white-tailed deer as a model. And so that is where those GPS collars tie in that I just spoke of. So uh, as the study continues, now we are looking at where those deer were on the, on the landscape and on the habitat. We're looking at where they were close to water or where they were close to fields, and we're going to tie that all in to see where West Nile virus might be more prevalent on the land. In the past, we had an episode with Nick Jaffe from Fisheries and Wildlife, and he was discussing about how he was actually modeling the movement of gray wolves using agent-based modeling. So you have all this data from these deer collars, and like you just said, if they're by the water or if they're on grasslands and stuff like that, what are you doing specifically with this data and how are you sifting through it all? It gets pretty complex pretty quickly. So these collars send a location every 30 minutes. So that's 48 locations a day. And some deer had them for up to three years. So that is an incredible amount of data. And luckily for me, I do not have to sift through all of that because that is not quite the focus of my project. But what I am looking through is I'm pulling out our deer that did come back positive for West Nile virus. And we're seeing where they were on the landscape, like I mentioned. So we use GIS, which is a geographical survey, uh, monitoring, and computer analysis equipment. And we can look at different habitats. So the national land cover data is what we utilize. And it just categorizes the topography in the land based on different things. So we have forests, wetlands, agriculture, and open water, for example. And so we give all those numerical values and we put them into our GIS software. Uh, and that allows us to see what percentage of the time an animal was using certain habitat, if they were using it more frequently based on what was available. Uh, and again, that kind of all spirals off into several different analysis you can use to see how each animal was using their habitat based on what was available. We've talked about this in previous interviews before, but just to remind our audience, GIS stands for Geographical Information Systems. Avery, whenever you're working in the GIS software, can you give us a little visualization of what it is to actually see how these deer are moving? For sure. So what it looks like on your computer screen is you get little red dots of everywhere a certain deer has been. Or if you want to cover the whole map in little red dots, you can pull up all of our deer. But that, like I said, that's a bit overwhelming. So normally focus on a deer at a time. And then, like I said, we can lay over these different layers. And those layers have different values and variables. So one, like I mentioned, is the National Land Cover Data Layer. So that's splitting up all of our deer's locations based on habitat versus there might be another layer where it's hydrology. So we're looking at small amounts of water. So that national land cover data only gets big things like ponds and rivers. If you guys are familiar with mosquito biology, they love to breed in stagnant pools. So we would expect there to be more mosquitoes in areas where there's more stagnant pools. So that hydrology layer can really pull out those stagnant pools and help us get a better picture of that. So really, you have all these maps with all these layers, and then the lovely red dots of the deer on there. That's what you're looking at, and then the computer's doing a lot of the hard work and the number crunching for you. 
Like Danny mentioned earlier, we're both from Florida, and we've heard before things like advisories for West Nile virus, where they'll say to put on mosquito repellent to help protect you from contracting the virus. When are the numbers high enough? What benchmarks do you all use, like you and other scientists, in order to announce that there is a West Nile virus advisory? What the Michigan Department of Health and Human Safety normally goes off of is human cases. And so in Michigan, those are definitely much lower than Florida, just because West Nile virus is not as prevalent here due to climate and some other factors as it maybe is in Florida. And I do not know really truly the benchmark of what the Michigan Department of Health and Human Safety would set for there to be advisories in place. And as well, you know, I am not a native Michigander. I am from Texas. And so I have never been present in Michigan for a West Nile virus advisory. But I know back home in Texas, if we are placed under one, it's typically because there's a high mosquito population and at least a pretty large number of human cases that have been confirmed in a certain county. And so my guess is in Michigan, they have similar protocols. And so kind of tying this back into my project, We want to help the Michigan Department of Health and Human Safety with issuing those sorts of advisories by helping them to know where West Nile virus might be most prevalent on the landscape or which counties might be most impacted or most likely to become impacted based on where we found white-tailed deer that were positive for West Nile virus. It's a relief to hear that West Nile virus doesn't have nearly the same prevalency up here in Michigan as it does down in Texas or in South Florida. When it comes to the symptoms of West Nile virus, are there any differences between what is observed between humans and deer? And do deer exhibit any symptoms at all from West Nile virus? Deer actually don't often go clinical or present with symptoms for West Nile virus, or at least if they do, we don't really know about it. And so again, kind of as I mentioned before, West Nile virus isn't really a big deal for the white-tailed deer population. If deer are actually dying from it, it's a very small number and we don't know much about them. And so while it's definitely a concern because we know they can become infected with West Nile, they are definitely on the lower end of the spectrum as far as symptoms. And like I said, we use the word morbidity, which is a, a fancy word for you know getting sick and mortality, which is death. And so the point of this research is not so much about the health of the white-tailed deer population in mid-Michigan. Again, we're really just trying to utilize them as almost like there's this new buzzword kind of floating around in epidemiology, and it's called a sentinel species. If you ever heard the word sentinel, it's like a guard, right, or someone, a watchdog. And so the idea is a white-tailed deer could tip us off as to where there's a lot of a large population of mosquitoes or birds that are positive with West Nile virus. And again, tying back into we can notify public health authorities, right? Hey, this park has got a high density of positive mosquitoes or positive birds. We really shouldn't go out there at dawn and dusk. Those types of things are things we really hope to come out of this project, or at least even general kind of conclusions that wetlands or agriculture areas are much more likely to have a positive West Nile virus, or that's not really good. Agriculture or wetland areas are much more likely to have higher instances of West Nile virus, so we would avoid those areas at dawn and dusk. This reminds me that earlier last year, we had an episode with David Butts about chronic wasting disease and how they were actually modeling the movement of deer as well. Something we didn't get to talk about, though, in that episode was how you were actually mentioning that you collar the deer. What is it like collaring a deer? How do you capture it and how do you get the collar on the deer? And is it safe for them to just be walking around with a collar afterward? 
It's interesting you bring up chronic wasting disease because that kind of ties into the reason why these deer are getting collared in the first place. The project that is collaring them is around chronic wasting disease, uh, and that's why we're focused in mid-Michigan. It's to see how these deer are moving, get a little bit better idea of their home ranges about their habitat utilizations to help prevent the spread of chronic wasting disease. But the capture of them is a really unique process, and it's pretty fun in my opinion. But we utilize several methods to first restrain the deer. And so those can maybe be a drop net, which is a large net hung up on poles with a big center pole and a magnet. And we have a little remote. So once deer walk underneath the net, typically we bait them with some sort of corn or or deer food. And we can detonate that and drop that magnet, fall all the way to the ground and drop the net on all the sides. And so that normally gives you about 10 seconds to rush out of a little blind, or maybe you're even in the truck and chase these deer and and get them in that net and and grab a hold of them so that they won't escape. So those nets are not meant to completely restrain them, just kind of get them kind of tangled up for enough time when you can go out there and get them. And so once we have our hands on the deer, then they're typically sedated, a variety of medications. And after sedation, that is when we do all of the different research duties. So for this project, again, the main focus was the collar. So we would get the collar on the animals, which is pretty simple. Uh, There's a measuring tool, measuring device you use to check the size of the deer's neck. Uh, And then you select a collar, does or, or female deer and bucks. Male deer have different collars and different collar sizes because they're a slightly different size. But the general rule of thumb and the general rule of thumb for all animals and species is that a collar shouldn't weigh more than 2% of an animal's body weight. And so our deer collars are much below that number. And so we don't believe that they impact any sort of behavior. There's been a lot of research on a variety of species, including deer, about how collars impact behavior. And nothing's really ever come back that it's changing how they're living their day-to-day life. I'm sure all the animal lovers listening in right now are probably really happy to hear that the deer are being treated as humanely as possible. That got me thinking a little bit about how you actually have to go out there and finish the capture once the trap has been set and triggered. When it comes to the deer that you are collaring, are you only looking at the local mid-Michigan region or are you traveling all over the state to try and track deers in both the lower and upper peninsula? For the purpose of this study, chronic wasting disease is focused in mid-Michigan. That's typically where we've seen outbreaks historically. And so those are where the trap sites were located for this study. So we had sites in Ingham and Clinton counties. And within those counties, we were in Meridian, kind of there right in Okemos near that area, very neighborhood urban area. And we were also out towards Eagle and Westphalia, so kind of on the western side of the Greater Lansing area, much more agricultural, much more rural. So we had trap sites at both locations, and that is really cool for my study because those are very different habitats. And so what we've seen and what we're continuing to kind of dive into is how those habitats impacted the seropositivity of white-tailed deer for West Nile virus. And so we're still kind of teasing through all the results, but it looks like there are some interesting conclusions to be made there uh, as far as how these deer are utilizing that landscape and how that in turn is exposing them to West Nile virus. Yeah, it would make sense that you're looking at places like Ingham and Clinton County because it's much closer than going all the way up to the Upper Peninsula. Now, I'm no deer expert, but I think they hibernate in the winter. When do you capture them, and afterwards, do you gather the data year-round every day? We actually do most of our capturing in the winter, but not because the deer are hibernating, but because there's a limited resource availability, right? So in the winter, not very many plants for these deer to eat, lots of snow cover on the ground. 
that means they're a lot more likely to come to our bait stations. So in Michigan, you're not allowed to bait for deer or offer deer corn because of chronic wasting disease, but because of research, we were able to bait them for our trap locations. Uh, and so again, really increases our odds and our success of getting deer underneath our nets in the wintertime. So it's very cold. We're often sitting out there for several hours and it's below zero degrees, not talking, not moving, waiting for deer to come around at dusk. Uh, so you can drop that net and hopefully capture a few that night. But actually, once we put the collar on them, we will, like I said, get that medication in their system, do a full workup on those deer, and then we will reverse that medication. And that normally takes about three minutes. Those deer are back up on their feet and running back into the woods. They want nothing to do with us again, hopefully still with that GPS collar on. And so, like I mentioned before, the GPS collar does take data every day, but it stores all that data. And so we'll go and find those collars either once they fall off or sometimes these deer are involved in collisions with vehicles or sometimes they're harvested during the fall by hunters. And all in any situation, we will go back and find that collar and download the data. And again, yeah, so a location every 30 minutes for as long as they had that collar on will all be on that collar. So lots of data, but we can't access it until we get that collar back in our possession. It's pretty wild to me to think that you have to wait until you actually get the collar back to actually analyze the data that was generated as the deer was moving throughout the state of Michigan. If that's the case, how do you know then where the collars are whenever it's time to collect them, whether it's whenever a deer passes away due to either a predator or from a disease such as chronic wasting disease? So maybe I was a bit too general in my previous example that we don't get any collar data back. There is a little bit that gets transmitted. One of the biggest things is if a collar hasn't moved. So typically you can set that for a different interval, whether you want it to be 12 hours or 24 hours, where a collar hasn't moved or moved a significant amount and it will alert someone on the research team and we can go investigate and see what the situation is with that collar. So that typically solves the issue if the deer was in a vehicle accident or if it was harvested by, if it was predated. But if it was harvested by a hunter, a lot of times it won't stop moving, right? Or at least for a little bit. And typically we're on the honor system there with the hunters. The Michigan DNR has a pretty good relationship with most hunters. And for that reason, they know that they those GPS collars are worth a lot of money and worth a lot of time. And so they'll get those collars back to us one way or another. Normally it's, like I said, whenever they harvest or hunt them in the fall, they will report them. We'll either come pick them up or someone will bring them to us. So I didn't mention before, but every deer that we capture, we place an ear tag in, very similar to if you have ever seen a cow maybe with an ear tag. And so that's a unique identifying number. So along with the collar, they also have the tag. And so that allows us to know which collar is which. Oh yeah, we're super familiar with tagging of cow ears because Danny and I actually visited the dairy farm at MSU after we did an interview about cows. Now, the deer aren't exactly aware that the collars are this piece of technology. So they may be like running into bushes or even like hitting it against a tree or something like how easy are these collars to damage and what happens if they are damaged? Long story short, it's really hard to damage them, especially for a deer. These collars are built to be really, really tough. And believe it or not, deer are actually one of probably the more gentle species on a collar, as far as some different animals that have been collared for other studies or, or in general. Deer normally, like you said, are probably walking through some thick brush, maybe getting a little spooked or startled and jumping around, but nothing too crazy. And so generally the collars hold up really well. In fact, I'd never heard of an instance where a deer damaged a collar enough to where data wasn't being collected or anything like that. 
Yeah, I could see how deer are pretty docile comparatively to other animals that usually get tagged for research. We've talked a lot about the experimental information that you've been collecting when you're tracking your deer. But one thing I'm thinking about now is does this information feed into any models of West Nile virus movement itself through the state of Michigan, or is there not enough statistics yet? Yeah, so I definitely go the second half of that route. And basically, like I said, this is one of the first papers ever published West Nile virus in white-tailed deer. And to my knowledge, it would actually be the first paper or really research ever investigating the use of habitat by West Nile virus positive deer. So by taking this habitat component in, we are really bringing a whole new level to the game and really trying to see if, for lack of a better word, right, it's worth anything. Is there really a relationship here between deer that are coming back positive for West Nile virus and their habitat use? And so that's really what we're getting at. Again, totally awesome goal would be to kind of have that information and start collecting more and feeding it into models, or at least using it to help make predictions uh, about where West Nile virus might be more common or more dangerous. So I know that you said that you're a junior and that you're studying for your undergraduate career in fisheries and wildlife. Will you be continuing this research for the next year? And then maybe are you considering graduate school afterwards? Yeah, so I definitely want to see this project through to the end. And so, like I said, there is a lot of data on the habitat side that we just haven't gotten to dive into yet. And we definitely have some cool new ways and new things to go about looking at the data. One of them, like I mentioned, was the hydrology map. We're going to look at that to help see if there's some water on the landscape we're missing, where mosquitoes might be laying more eggs and having a larger population. We also, maybe in the future, are considering trapping mosquitoes, running live mosquito traps to bring in that vector component. So if we have the habitat, we have the host, it would be really cool to see where the vector populations are and see that factor as well. But actually, my post-graduation plans for MSU will be to attend veterinary school. So I want to become a wildlife veterinarian. So still staying on the kind of animal health and wildlife focus, but just taking it a a different route and... um, Who knows where I might end up with that kind of training and degree, but I'm really excited and really passionate about veterinary medicine, and I really like wildlife. So I'm excited to maybe work in the conservation world or in the wildlife research world, all to help, you know, tie this, all to help us just know more about animal health. And wildlife veterinarians are a big, big part in preventing zoonotic diseases like West Nile virus and like COVID-19. And so I am passionate about that as well. It's really cool to hear about your passions and what you're interested in studying once you're finished with your undergraduate degree. Thanks again for talking to us about your research, Avery, and good luck with the rest of your undergraduate. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.